Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the second half of season one of Share the Air. We had a much needed break, and we hope that you all had had a nice vacation as well. We're recording this uh, on a Friday, and last night, Tulsa actually got to do something super fun, a really cool part of the vacation, and she went to the uh, U.S. Women's National Team game versus Mexico last night, I think in Connecticut? Yeah, in Hartford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had I walked to a friend's house to watch the game and was hit in that downpour, which when I got to her apartment and saw the game on the screen and saw the absolute torrential rain that was happening there, you were caught in the middle of it. I saw they panned to the stands a couple times. And Did you people see were me? Just, we didn't see, but that honestly could just be because everyone, everyone was in was wearing ponchos. A yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, how was it? It looked it it was a good game. It was fun. It was yeah, it was super fun. I mean, four goals is like always fun to watch. And <laughs> Tobin Heath scored that goal. She must have been in for I don't know, massive, like 20 yeah, seconds <laughs> and scored a goal and it was beautiful and amazing. It was so much fun and it poured rain the whole time. I think it started it was raining when I got there and then it started pouring about 10 minutes in and just like nonstop. But it was 70 degrees, so it was warm, and we were just all kind of soggy together, <laughs> and it went by so fast, and there was there were 21,000 people there, which is like kind of overwhelming, you know, coming back from a year of not being with even close to that many people, but it was great to have so many people, and everyone was like super excited. I don't know, it was just really fun to be back in, in a crowd with people cheering on amazing women, yeah. It was overall a fantastic experience. Lou, what are you what did you do? What are you up to this weekend? What I did over the break was I played a lot of Ultimate, which was crazy coming I think this was like the some of the few first times that I played Ultimate in like a year and a half, maybe more. Um I attended gridlock practice, which was mm-hmm. super fun. The team looks really good. I'm super excited for the season. Um, yeah, our roster just dropped. Our roster did just drop. Go check it out. So yeah, and I got to play with some of those new people this weekend, and that was that was really fun. Um, What else did I do? As much of a a break from share the air as it was, it still required a little bit of (laughs) a little bit of editing and behind the scenes work. So it wasn't it wasn't a true break, but enough of one. And now that our break is over, we're really excited to get back to the rest of the season, and we're launching a Share the Air swag raffle to welcome back all of our listeners. So you can share our post on your social media to be entered into the raffle, and you might win a piece of Share the Air swag. There will be more details coming on Monday, July 5th on our social media channels. Cool. So make sure you're following Share the Air so you can stay up to date on that. These are the same pieces of apparel that our Patreon supporters have a chance to win as well. And speaking of our Patreon supporters, we have a listener question. Our very first one from David J. Yay! <laughs> okay. Okay, so David writes, With the recent Supreme Court ruling, I think it's fair to assume we will see students making money off of endorsements and their likeness within the next few years. So my question is, do you think student-athletes should be paid? And if so, how do you think it should be done? Lou, do you want to start? Yeah, so for a bit of context, traditionally student athletes, uh, athletes playing in college, uh, do not get paid. There's like this amateur status that's associated with them. And very recently, there was a Supreme Court ruling that is now allowing college athletes, student athletes, to make money off things like their likeness, their brand, uh, with I think the explosion of social media and now even with TikTok, a lot of these college athletes are becoming like small celebrities in their own right. But up until very recently, they haven't been able to make any money off of any work that they do. And for a lot of people like on social media, that brand work is a lot of work. There's like whole businesses dedicated to making money for influencers and celebrities and things like that. So Student athletes or college athletes who like are very popular and have this like sort of celebrity status have been doing really similar work and haven't been able to make any money off of it because of this like NCAA ruling that college athletes can't be paid for their work. There's other compensations that arguments have been made for in the past. Like often student athletes get some sort of a scholarship, if not like a full ride, there's different amenities they get, but often 
it's not even a full ride. And there's, of course, still other things that folks need to to pay for. Yeah. And Um, I think, Lou, can you explain where the money does go if the student athletes aren't getting it? Because it's a big money-making industry. Yeah, totally. A lot of this money that is being generated by TV contracts, by merch sales, like all of these sorts of things. Corporate sponsorships. Yeah, all of these things, the millions and millions, if not billions of dollars they produce, a lot of them go not to the student athletes who are doing a lot of this work, but to folks like the NCAA board members, conference executives, um, coaches, folks, coaches, yeah. And more often than not, these folks are also white people. So, and I, I, th- I looked up a couple of numbers. I think in 2019, the head of the NCAA pulled in something like, it was like $3 million or something in, in that sort of ballpark range. Um, and I, I read that coaches are the highest paid public employees in 39 states. So there, it's a huge business. There's so much money in it. And a lot of it goes to the big, the big, what do you call it? The fat cats at the top. <laughs> I don't know what the word is for that. A lot of this money doesn't go to the actual student athletes whose faces are being used, whose names are being used to generate this money. Yeah, it wouldn't um, exist without the athletes. Yeah. So with that, there has been this new this recent ruling that college athletes should be allowed to make money off of their likeness. I believe that there's two parts. So student athletes can receive education related payments up to $6,000 a year, and then they can receive as many non-cash education benefits as they want. Mm -hmm. So student athletes are going to start taking advantage of this and they're going to be, you know, I already saw uh, a couple of student athletes on TikTok to be like, I'm dropping merch, <laughs> like I'm dropping merch with my name um, sort of thing. Because they do, they have enormous followings on, on social media. But to go back to David's question, should student athletes be paid and how should that be done? Um, I think there's been many arguments um, for why they, they should be paid and why they shouldn't be paid. And in researching some of those arguments, I have to say that a number of the why they shouldn't be paid is bullshit. <laughs> one of the one of the ones I saw for why they shouldn't be paid is that it removes a love of the game. And I just can you imagine saying that to any pro yeah. athlete now? Like if I pay you for this, if I pay you for the hours that you spend in the gym, that you hours you spend taking care of your mind and body, the hours of press conferences and whatever else, if I pay you for that work, you're not going to enjoy playing the game anymore. <laughs> I mean, like they wouldn't be at this level if they didn't enjoy playing the game. <laughs> exactly. So I look, I researched a little bit more and some of the arguments that I found for why they should be paid really resonate. As we just mentioned, it takes like this work, it's a ton of labor. It's a ton of uh, training. You spend hours doing it every single day, day in and day out. There are injury risks associated with that. Yeah. It can be career ending lifelong. Yeah. I, I, I know that it's very common that if you get an injury that essentially removes you from playing for a season, a college can take away your scholarship. And if we're looking at students who come from disenfranchised areas or low-income backgrounds who already relied on their sport to be able to send them to this school and now an injury happens out of their control and that scholarship gets taken away then they can no longer attend not even just have the sports experience but also get the education that they were also at the school for so paying them I think paying a student would help alleviate some of those things on top of that, I saw that if a student athlete has to spend like all the time that they do in the gym, training with the team, focusing on the sport and preparing for the sport, they don't have time to do things like take a second job because they're spending all of that time preparing for the sport, which is work. So paying them for that time and that effort would do the same. Uh, Tulsa, what were some 
arguments that you had seen or, or things that you had learned? I know that very few college athletes actually go on to make money professionally. I didn't quite know the numbers. So college football players, only 1.6% go on to make money and 1.2% of college basketball players go on to get drafted in, in professional leagues. So it's like a very small number of college players that go on to actually make any money in the future from playing their sport. So basically they're giving away their time and their effort in college to these schools that profit off of them. I think another big piece of this is that the majority of student athletes in especially basketball and football in, in which the biggest ad money and, and sponsorships comes in, the majority of those athletes are black and brown people. And there's the it it adds to this where it's like, okay, we're if schools are taking the labor of these individuals and profiting off of it and not paying them, like completely exploiting them. And, and the majority of these athletes are black and brown. Then it's just like super exploitative. Mm -hmm. So in, in thinking about all these reasons of why we should pay athletes, what do you think about how that would happen? How we go about doing that? Um, well, I think number one, we kind of just mentioned the, enormous amounts of money that board members and executives pull in. I think that with the amounts of money that they pull in starting there is is a good <laughs> is a good start in terms of how to actually come up with this money. These are these are like billions of dollars that that go in and out of these businesses all on the backs of student athletes who don't get any compensation. The perks that schools provide in terms of like, yes, a scholarship, but like free books and, you know, gym perks. Like that's, that's at the end of the day, that's, that's all bull. That doesn't last. It doesn't actually give any sort of long-term value to student athletes and especially student athletes who are black and brown folks to have very rich white people making millions of dollars off of their labor is just flat out wrong. So I think starting with those sorts of executives and the money that they pull in in order to keep student athletes super limited um, in what they do is is one place to find money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is there anything else we want to say before we wrap up? In summary, pay the athletes. <laughs> Take it from those white dudes at the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um no, I think that I think that says it all. I think that in share the airs spirit of learning. If any listeners want to add more to this conversation, please drop us a note, like at our email, at our social, on Patreon, and we'll we'll take a look and include it in a future episode. Um, we're all yeah. about continuing conversations here at Share the Air. Yeah, and thank you to David for this question. We really enjoyed talking about it and learning more about it. If you'd like to submit a question for us to answer, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash share the air. Cool. And now we'll get into our conversation with Ray Tang. We're excited to introduce today's guest, Ray Tang. Ray began playing ultimate at Watchung Hills High School in New Jersey. During her first year of college at Northwestern, Ray played with Nutt, Northwestern men's ultimate team. Ray most recently captained and played for Claw, Northwestern women's ultimate team. Ray is a writer, filmmaker, and director studying film, TV, radio, economics, and computer science at Northwestern. Ray graduated this spring and dreams of writing for TV one day. Ray, welcome to Share the Air. Yay, thanks for having me. <laughs> so I think... It would be great to start with you talking about how you got into Ultimate and, yeah, how you got into Ultimate. <laughs> sure. Uh, I got into Ultimate because I didn't make the fall play. And <laughs> I was, that was the devastating end to my acting career. But we had a Frisbee program at the high school and I realized that all my friends were going there. And so I wanted to join them as well. But it was crazy because I went to Watchung Hills where we had a huge frisbee program already in place and 
I realized that I really, <laughs> I was hesitant to go at first, I think, because all my friends are going and I was like, I want to be against the crowd. But at a certain point, I'm like, you know, this acting thing isn't panning out. I have nothing to do for fall. So I went to my first practice and I really haven't looked back since. <laughs> so then going into college, did you know you wanted to keep playing Ultimate? And then what was that transition like? Oh God, I did not want to play Ultimate in college. <laughs> um, I was so burnt out. It's weird to think about now, but senior year of high school, I was like, wow, I made high school nationals with my team. I guess this is the peak of Ultimate. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, like, I'm like washed up now. I should just retire. <laughs> it made no sense. But I think there's a little bit of thinking that like, oh my God, will I find community at Northwestern? And again, I think the answer throughout my like frisbee playing experience has been that the people brought me back. The Northwestern community was just so kind. The women's and men's programs were so integrated in a way that I've never seen before. And it was... It was bliss. It was just so much fun. <laughs> did you connect with Ultimate People first and then you they dragged you to a practice or something? Or did you just decide to go to a practice? How did that happen? So at the start of the school year, we have these big scrimmages on Deering, which is our library, like the main, like mm -hmm. when you see a postcard in Northwestern, you, you normally see that or the Lakeville. And I remember like thinking like, okay, I can't just not go. I've played four <laughs> years. I should mess around. And I talked to some folks there. It was really great. I really felt like I was making connections. It was just so supportive because like, you know, this house is co-ed. Our programs are so integrated. It was just so amazing to see. And then that made me really want to come back. So you went from being a uh, quote-unquote washed-up national <laughs> high school champion to now still playing at the end of your senior year and captaining your team. Yeah, I wouldn't say high school champion. I definitely was carried a bit <laughs> going to high school nationals. But um, yeah, it, it was, I mean, it's just been a long journey. Just so much has happened. I mean, I switched programs. I learned a lot about what kind of player I want to be and sort of thinking about how in what ways I want to grow as a player and how to make sure that people aren't excluded. I don't know. There's, there's like, there was for sure a lot of learning and growing that had to happen <laughs> in my four years here. Are there any specific things that you can share? Like as a player, what were some of those things that you feel like you've improved on or developed over the four years? So a good example of this would be like 18 B team, that kind of structure that college teams have. When I came in, at least I would think, oh yeah, you want to like separate off the higher level players because then they have higher level competition. You want to give the younger players more opportunities to grow. And so that's why there's a B team. But I, I guess I didn't really realize at the beginning was that that creates a level of exclusion that it could sometimes hinder the progress of younger players rather than help. Because there's just a lot of passing of knowledge that happens if you integrate those practices. And even then like 18 B team, like higher level is so relative and subjective. What does that even mean? And so we weren't able to implement this year because of COVID, but because the fact that we don't have a B team because COVID, like why would we separate? But we were hoping to implement a little more 18 B team, like mixed practicing, even throughout the regular season. That was just something I think about a lot is how do you grow and how do you, and do you need exclusion to necessarily like grow in that regard? Do you have to be the little fish in a big pond? Could you sometimes be that big fish in a little pond and then also help people grow along the way? That was a very weird convoluted metaphor, but hopefully... That makes sense. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. And is like yeah. definitely something that I know that I felt in college and I think still a hundred percent happens at the club level. And mm -hmm. it's like not A and B team, obviously, but you have those tiers of skill and competition that people seek out. And so, yeah, I think that discussion definitely still happens even mm -hmm. at the club level. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really difficult one. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting to think about what is your goal in having A and B teams, because in general, the goal is to get more people to be able to play. But yeah, what is your goal then in how you divide who's on which team? I, I think that's a really important point of like, how do you then use the knowledge and skills on both teams and, and cross share those? Yeah, it's complicated. I did a research project last summer about the history of our program, like the Northwestern Women's Program specifically. And one part of that was figuring out how the B team was founded and there was a lot of just learning and understanding how there was an era I think it was like 2010s that B teams were popping up all over throughout the country Frisbee was becoming a bigger sport and it really did feel like that B teams were formed because of a numbers game we had too many people on the A team 
so we needed to house them somewhere and they were also not getting playing time so the b team seemed like the logical step but it was difficult because i think when b team is formed because of like a numbers issue there needs to also be intentionality with what you want to do with the program and that was something that i observed while looking at the situation and yeah admittedly like i am definitely still learning on this front i'm i was not a b team player when i entered college and i definitely made mistakes in that regard of thinking in too much in terms of a team and not in terms of b team and it's just a very hard thing to do especially if you're on one side or the other like it's just hard to think about the other team's perspective and it really shouldn't be a separated program like that i think the important thing is the intention behind it all that you just mm-hmm. mentioned and i think something that's probably extra hard for college teams is that you have to have that constant intention of okay what do what is this program about how do these two teams, if they're separate, how do they integrate? And I think mm-hmm. probably something that's difficult for college teams is like every four years you have a new group of people anyway. Yeah. So you kind of have to like, those people have to figure out what's best for them. And maybe the existing system wasn't it. Why do you think you mentioned that the men's and women's programs are like really well connected? Do you have any sense of what it is that helps keep your programs connected? Full disclosure, it's funny answering this question because I actually, primarily my playing experience is with the men's side. Like I have played for Claw, previously gung-ho for two years, but you know, pandemic. So I've only actually played for six months. So my thinking here might be kind of filtered, but I think just looking at the history, I mean, when Claw was just starting as Goatee back in 1998, the members of the men's team, I think they were called Vomit Monkeys back then. um, They would yeah i know it's gross (laughs) (laughs) the captains and leadership would actually go to the women's practices help teach them skills and like support them along the way and so i think from the very start there was that intentionality like our founder of the program for the women's team was the previous player on the men's team who realized and wanted to create Mm -hmm. more playing opportunities but the men totally supported her on that front i'm sure there was some drama along the way like i don't don't want to paint like a perfect picture but i think that level of support i mean just like there's been a lot of camaraderie between both programs. And then I think about, I think it's in 2004 that the house was established. I mean, we've had this house in, for like 17 years. Wow. I, yeah. And it's always been co-ed and our program, while I think, you know, it wasn't like a perfect story of, oh, we were always in harmony, but this house really, this is like an emblem for me of how close and tight knit the two teams actually are in history and in current programming and it's something that I sometimes take for granted and I forget that that's unique and that's not something that most teams have. Share the Air will be right back but first here's a quick word from our sponsors. Share the Air is sponsored by the National Ultimate Training Camp located in western Massachusetts. Nutsi is the longest running ultimate sleepover camp in the country. It has also gone international hosting camps and teaching clinics all over the globe. With the most talented coaches in the world, Nutsi is teaching Ultimate for the next generation. Learn from the best at Nutsi. Share the Air is also sponsored by VC Ultimate. VC has been producing custom uniforms and performance apparel since 1998. A company that proudly puts values and community before profit, VC is the world's best source for quality design and all of your Ultimate needs. So were you a captain last spring when everything shut down and you got sent home, what has the past year and a half been like as a captain? Um, miserable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I really, a lot of points, I was so burnt out. I would tell my co-captains, like, I really regret taking this captainship. I felt so, what's, I don't even have the right words. Like, I just joined this program I wanted to captain because I knew that I wanted to create inclusive spaces. That was something that I cared about. Jury's out on if I was able to do that. I hope so, but I definitely tried my best. In terms of captaining during COVID, it was really rough because we had to do virtual practices. Did you guys, do you guys do virtual practices? Because it kind of sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I helped coach Northeastern women's the Valkyries this past. Oh, no way. Yeah. So I I signed up to help coach January of 2020 and I got two Mm -hmm. months in person and then (laughs) nothing. And then we did virtual practices starting, I think in November or something. And Mm -hmm. we did them all the way until just a couple weeks ago. 
and they're really hard. And we had three right. coaches who were helping plan and run them. And, you know, the captains were still doing a ton of stuff. So, and it, like, even as a coach, it was hard to get, feel like I'm like keeping people engaged and doing Frisbee relevant stuff, but yeah. making it fun. It was hard. And I was just coaching. <laughs> Oh yeah. And also we lost you guys so many times. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but oh, you're fine. <laughs> Truly some of the funnest games ever. Uh no, I mean it's so hard. Like how can you there's not much you can do with a Zoom whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's rough. I think the worst part of it all was just feeling like we were robbed in a weird way. This was my first I never played out a full season on the women's team. For me, like when my transition, playing on a women's team was like the embodiment of womanhood meant for me at least in that immediate moment. And so, yeah, I felt like that was robbed from me. I remember when we found out all, everything was getting canceled, I was having dreams about it because I was just, so it was just so on my mind. I was weirdly grieving. Um, now I'm okay. I went through five stages, but it was, it was really tough there for a moment thinking about how we never get to do it. I never get to experience what college women's really is, especially at regionals and, you know, sectionals, regionals. Fingers crossed nationals. <laughs> but yeah, that was really difficult, I think. Yeah, that's, I think, a really difficult thing. And I think something that is great that we're talking to you about, like a college player. I think that's a really huge thing that we like maybe aren't talking about in our community mm -hmm. very much. I think we're talking about right. like, how do we set up a new national so that like people can have this this experience and stuff. And I don't know that there has been a lot of talk about a lot of the grief that a lot of college players went through in terms of losing their seasons you only get those what four to five years to begin with and then yeah to have one taken it's really it, two, it's really hard yeah. yeah basically too yeah and so it's I mean it's great to hear your your perspective on it and it's great that that you know they're working to have other playing opportunities this fall and also it's not feasible for everyone to be able to just drop everything and play a series in the fall after they graduate yeah yeah yeah, I don't I don't even know if I'm able to make that series. I don't think a lot of my teammates can. So yeah. it's yeah. I mean it's a it's it's a great attempt at a solution. It's just like I, I just don't know if, if it will go through for our team. I really hope so. I'm you know, I'm gonna stay optimistic. That's my yeah. that's my goal. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then there's the other whole piece of it, which I've heard some people talking about is like how do programs move forward? Because I don't know about you, but I think at Northeastern, we had one, maybe a couple more freshmen join this year, but it was hard to recruit new players and hard to bring them into a virtual season. So it's it's also kind of sad, scary to think about how much work captains and programs are going to have to do to kind of try and like regrow for future years. Oh yeah, that's been that's been top of mind for sure. I mean, once my year leaves, really the only players who've had even a general experience of working knowledge of how the season works is the year below me. And that's a lot of pressure to put on them. And yeah, there's a loss of knowledge that's happening. I mean, the, 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 the reassuring thing is everyone's going through it. So, you know, <laughs> levels, <laughs> so competition at regionals is going to be scaled. But uh, I think actually that's so interesting that you brought up recruitment. I'm really sorry to hear that it was difficult because I think we've gotten like very lucky with the freshmen that did show up because we've had in-person practices recently and we were able to go return to play with under Northwestern guidelines. And that was kind of huge. That kind of reaffirmed mm -hmm. my belief that Frisbee is nice. I like Frisbee, but also these newcomers are so talented. <laughs> Why has everyone played in high school or captained a high school team? <laughs> it's kind of bogus. But I think for me, I was so like, I felt so reassured in a weird way. Like, I'm like, oh, they're going to be fine. <laughs> These are such talented, they're kind people. I think it's going to suck for a bit recovering, but I, I think they're good. I think the players are going to come out just fine. I mean, just the level of talent that's coming in is just unreal. <laughs> yeah, that's a good reminder. That's good. That gives me some hope. <laughs> yeah. 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 They'll rebuild. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about your other schoolwork and being a college student in, in the pandemic? Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, it just impeded everything. Everything was so much heavier. I'm a film student, so I had to film my senior thesis this past year. And we had serious, serious COVID restrictions on set. And I mean, we were filming a party scene with nine people. And that was like, oh my gosh. 
It was so painful. It was a 13-hour set. I cannot believe that that happened. I felt so bad for everyone involved. I was like, I will never write a party scene again. Um, <laughs> but on top of like the tiredness, though, there is a level of so ready to get back to normal that a couple of film members were just so ready to like jump on it. And it was just so lovely. And also it helped that the people were just some of the best humans on earth. It was an all-women crew looking back, which is kind of crazy. And that was not intentional. It just sort of happened that way. There were a lot of queer people on set. There were a lot of Asian American women on set. It was just a really great place. And it was just so fun to hang with these people. I really formed some memories that I don't think I'm going to forget. Yeah, yeah, sounds like community was another big piece of the space too for you. Yeah. Yeah, always. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what your film is about? Yeah, it's called Emergence. So it is about a trans athlete, actually, who is kind of trying to figure out her own identity and she encounters another human who is bi and who's just coming out and like figuring out her own sexuality and they're sort of together able to understand each other and themselves more and sort of grow as people and that's a very vague log line but it sort of is what it is it's more like a character study of how do these two people how do queer people build community how do we like bond what is it like just to live in a queer body and that was something that really fascinated me, especially just because, you know, the story is not about the traditional narrative of a trans person finding out, oh, I'm trans. It's very much about living with that. It's about locker rooms. It's about, like, spaces and how to interact in those. And the differences in, like, the other characters, just queer women. And there's a whole dialogue sequence about princesses and how that means different things for different people. Like, for trans women, that's very empowering. Like, oh, my God, I get to explore my femininity. Whereas for cis women, that's oppressive. <laughs> patriarchal, um, <laughs> heteronormative, et cetera. So it's just funny how some things mean completely different interpretations. Wow. I think yeah. there's something really attractive about queer stories that are not about just being queer or discovering that you're queer. And I know that coming out stories, we didn't even have that to start even right. how many years ago. So like, yes, of oh, course, yeah. that's so important. But there is something really appealing about getting to hear the stories that cis and straight people hear all the time. And then we get to hear it from our own perspective and with our own voice. And I think that's really appealing to like hear what maybe other groups now feel is boring or mundane or overdone. And it's like, well, I've never seen that done for me. I would love to tell it in my own way. So that totally sounds like what your piece is about and is really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just like enough with the queer trauma. Let's uh... <laughs> <laughs> like yeah yeah it's just let's let us live <laughs> sweet so what are your goals for your film work afterwards I know you have this piece premiering is it completely part of your major and requirements or does like something else come of it sure yeah with this film it's gonna get submitted to festivals and yeah in terms of career honestly like I'm trying to stay in Chicago I want to be making art for sure but I also want to live life for a bit like I don't know what womanhood is outside of college slash outside of pandemic life I, I want to be able to breathe for a second before you know going to LA becoming a cog in a machine and etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah for now I just want to I just want to live for a little bit seeing hearing reading you on being ulti was the first I had heard of you I guess and you, I think, did such an incredible job on being ulti. The way you took people's questions and answered them, it was just like, it, it. I mean, it made for really fantastic reads, but it was also just incredibly like well laid out and it was really cool. And I learned a lot and you're incredibly well-spoken. Did you, <laughs> sorry to do all of that to you just now, um, but uh, what did you, what did you get from that week? Like, how was that experience on being multi? Very draining and filled with anxiety, actually. I was so nervous that, I was so nervous that I was going to say the wrong thing because I think, you know, if it's in conversation like here, you can correct me and then I will learn and it'll be better. But on a public platform, I was realizing you could cause harm by saying something wrong. And that was like, I mean, I think I started off the week by saying something like, I am not perfect, so please keep me accountable, which I think always holds true. But in that case in particular, I just knew that like, I was just so worried about hurting people along the way. I, I remember I was like anxiously calling my sister and she's like, you should just speak from your own experiences. And that was something that I really tried to do throughout the week was making sure that I was 
only really at speaking for myself. I want to advocate for my community, but I can't speak for other people. It's just not my place. And so, yeah, that was really helpful. So thanks, Yvonne. Um, <laughs> out of that week, I definitely feel like I got a lot of great friends out of it. I learned a lot, I think, along the way of how to interact with people and just learning more about how to tweet, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> most importantly, I think I just, I was just so thankful for the opportunity to kind of put that, all that out there. There was a thread in particular that was me kind of relating some like stuff that happened in 2019 that was really difficult for me. And it was definitely part of my healing process. Like I felt lighter after sending those tweets. It felt like, oh, I was, I could make this into something useful. And that was, it was a great feeling, especially with all these anti-trans bills that are coming out. That was, yeah, it just felt really good to be able to do something for once. So I know you write from Nutsy and from 99 Days. And I know when you're on 99 Days and then also being ulti, something that I found was really valuable is like you sharing your story and your experience of a specific incident and and like getting an insight into what that experience was like for you. And I imagine that that's probably draining, like you said, and like very emotionally vulnerable. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate you saying that and putting that out there and, and being willing to help people learn through your experience. Thanks. I, I hope it helps. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know how people it's received, but I, I hope it helps. <laughs> I mean, I learned a lot from your threads and your answers on being ulti, but one thing that like really resonated to me was when you were talking about your Asian uh, American identity and figuring that out and stuff. And I know that at one point you like put out a tweet for resources and stuff, which was super cool. I think in one of one of those tweets, you like mentioned stuff about the model minority myth. And right. that was super cool for me. Both and does a lot of trainings and they ran an Asian American diaspora workshop back in the summer of last year. And it was so cool. I was in a room with a bunch of other Asian folks, mixed race folks, and we were all just like unpacking our identities. And I think that's one of the really crazy things that I've learned in the past year is like one person could be Chinese and one person could be Filipino and one person could be Japanese. And it's like coming from super different cultures and all of us had some sort of story or experience related to our identity that resonated with somebody else. And when you were doing mm. a lot of your stuff on being ulti, it's a little bit different, but I had stuff that really resonated for me. And it was like really, really cool and stuff like terms, even like model minority. That was like the first time I had heard that term in that class. And I was like, oh my gosh, my brain is just opening up to like all of the stuff that I felt for so long, but had no words to put for it. So yeah, I like, did you learn anything else this week about your, or that week, I should say, about your Asian American identity? It's it's crazy because like, I think that week, especially when Saturday rolled around, I don't, I don't know why I segmented it like this, but I was like, I'm going to talk about being Asian today. <laughs> like, that was like, sort of how my brain worked. And what, what was crazy was not like, what happened during that week, but after, where mm-hmm. Lily Goo connected with me. She reached out and she's like, it'd be cool to hang because I was asking her a lot for like advice about some tweets just to make sure that was okay. And so we hung out and like what you're saying about like being in that circle of, oh my God, like you did that. I like totally relate. Well, Lily's, Lily's Shanghainese. I'm also Shanghainese. And that's very much where we like, we suddenly were like, your mom does that too? Like <laughs> you feel like you need to please everyone all the time as well. We were just like, there's like a weird freak out session of like, whoa, like just bouncing back and forth and me like, we are very similar and it's just like I just yeah I didn't realize that I think also the reason why we have that experience is because like being Asian American is so invisible for me at a certain point I'm like (laughs) I think Asian American being Asian American is almost just you're not white that's very much how it feels sometimes and you eat bomb food but (laughs) that's what it was like for me it was like the other day I was watching I was re-watching like old Chinese TV and like I was like this is weird that this is a whole world that exists within me that I don't seem to like have the proper amount of reflection on and so that is definitely something that I'm working on in the future is thinking like oh my god I'm also Asian American and I kind of have to embrace that part of myself because it's because it's awesome great food again <laughs> but, 
but yeah, it's a part of me. And I love being uh, Shanghainese and Chinese American. Yeah, totally. At least personally, my mom moved here from Guam when she mm. was in med school. And so I, I definitely, for a very long time, didn't have a ton of other Filipino family around. And I right. certainly didn't have any Filipino friends. <laughs> There's just mm-hmm. like, either I grew up in a pretty white community. So what you're saying about being Asian American has sometimes just felt like I'm not white. Right. That super, super resonates with me. And so when I like joined Bent for the first time and there was multiple Asian American women and another Filipino person was like yeah. so exciting and yeah. now is one of my closest friends. And we like even have like our own little Filipino family and calling each of us cousin or something like that. It's, it's so fascinating. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Like this bond. And this is like what Frisbee, like I wouldn't have met these people if I didn't mm-hmm. play Frisbee. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like I, I have any of these connections at work or in anything else. So yeah, Frisbee has done some, some super cool stuff in terms of helping me figure out my sexual identity and my racial identity. It's really wild. <laughs> It's cool. hundred percent. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really cool. It's <laughs> Frisbee. It's funny. It's like the first time I've ever, one of the big draws of it was, it's the first time I've seen that many Asian American people in a sport. And I was like, that's, ex- that's, that's just something I never seen before. And that was really exciting. Yeah. And now share the air. will take a quick break to talk about today's teachable moment. These are brought to you by our sponsor, the Center for Applied Neuroscience. This week's Teachable Moment is about visualization. Visualization is a powerful mental skill that the brain can use to enhance performance. It's a practice that you and your brain can do off the field, and it's known to improve a variety of in-the-game skills, like basketball free throws, soccer penalty kicks, gymnastics routines, and likely many elements of ultimate. Basic visualization involves closing your eyes and imagining yourself doing a specific skill, like running an offensive play, laying out with good form, or practicing a throw. When you're visualizing, you're activating many of the same areas of the brain that you would activate if you were actually doing that thing in real life. The reason that visualization is so powerful is that from your brain's perspective, you are doing a skill. And the more the brain practices something, the more automatic it becomes. Just like practicing a play or a throw over and over again on the field, it gets easier. The same thing happens when you practice in your brain using visualization. Tulsa, I know you've done stuff with visualization before. What's your personal experience with it? I use visualization for a bunch of different reasons, but one specifically I like to visualize when I have a specific throw that I'm working on. Last season, I was struggling with a specific forehand in a certain situation, and I was using visualization to help picture myself doing the throw and executing it in the way that I wanted it to happen. Because I was having trouble doing it physically, I was able to picture it in my brain and run through it how I wanted it to come out. And that helped me be able to do it in real life. So visualization is legitimate practice time for our brain, and it can be used for all kinds of performances. Thanks to our sponsor, Dr. Mandy Wintink and the Center for Applied Neuroscience for this teachable moment. Head to www.knowyourbrain.ca and see what courses they have to teach you more about your brain. If you mention you heard about them here on Share the Air, you'll get a 5% discount off course fees, and they'll also donate 5% back to Share the Air. What do you maybe hope is next for the ultimate community at large? And it could just be like your college community. It could be your club community. Yeah. I think in the barriers of, you know, financial accessibility, racial justice, LGBTQ plus acceptance, I think the biggest thing is just to make sure that the conversation continues. Maybe my standards are very low, but (laughs) my hope is it doesn't fizzle out anytime soon, that we continue to talk of like, how do we continue to push for better spaces for everybody? Yeah, I think that's most important right now. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And if this isn't what you're getting at, then let me know. But I, I wonder if there's a piece like, the past year plus, we haven't been playing organized ultimate. So there's been a lot more time and energy around like conversations of what we want to change. And I personally am feeling a little like, okay, when we 
go back to playing ultimate, are we just going to go back to the way things were? Or are we actually thinking critically about carrying the things we've talked about wanting to change into our return to play? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely part of it. I mean, that piece is always there. It's just like, now that we're, we can put these things into practice, are we, are we going to answer that call? And I think also another part of what I was, I've also been thinking about recently is how to practice activism sustainability, how to practice activism sustainably. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I struggle with for sure. Like getting immediately burnt out. It's the reasons why, like, I sometimes like leave social media or just like don't think about stuff for a while. It's too much if you want to take on the world at once. You have to take it on in pieces. And yeah, and, and just like being ulti, while it was like such a great experience, it was honestly one of the most draining weeks of my life. It was a full time job. I was also had classes on top of it, so that was awful. But it was very much thinking like, I could only do that because it was a week. I couldn't have done that for like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like, that was, that was just not possible. Yeah. I've been thinking about that too. So I just finished reading um, the book Emergent Strategy, and and there's a there's a chunk in there where she talks about pleasure activism and wanting activism to be joyful. And if we're doing activism in a way where it's I mean, it's not joyful, it's not energizing, then it's going to be hard and it's going to be a slog and it's going to be something that's hard to do sustainably. So that's something I've been thinking about. I don't have answers yet, but I've been trying to think about how to how to do activism sustainably and in a joyful way. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't put your best work in otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm struggling. I don't know. Do you guys have any advice? <laughs> <laughs> I I also read Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie, Marie Brown. She's the author. And I mean, if you're looking for answers... <laughs> I think that book is really great. It sets forth like a lot of frameworks that things like I hadn't thought about. And I'm not saying that this book is also all of the answers. It's one person's Mm -hmm. thoughts, but something that she does talk a lot about in her book is about community and how important community is for bouncing ideas back and forth, for finding people who can hold you accountable for finding people who can pick you up when you're tired for finding people who can like step forward while you step back if you need. And I think that's one of the solutions I've reflected on is community is so important. Community is a thing that makes us energized and like excited to work for the people in our community and make the lives of the people in our community better. That's my first attempts at solutions is what's your community for you and what can you do for your community? What can your community help you out with? So another question we have for you is if there's any message that you want to share with the ultimate community. One of the things I wrote on a thread was like thinking about how to make this place better than you found it. I think that's just something that I'd like to ask everyone is just like, how do you plan on doing that? Because I think that's something that, something I think about quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like that mindset. I love that reflection. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. (laughs) Yep. We can do our game. Yeah. Yes. Let's do the game. (laughs) game. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So our game is called 10 second stall. We have a series of questions and for each question, you'll have 10 seconds from when we start saying the question to when you have to answer. <laughs> but the why it's called 10 seconds stall is because if you hit 10 seconds, we'll say stall. You get stalled out. Okay, so I have 10 seconds to answer the question or 10 seconds so to think about it? the clock starts as soon as we start saying the question. Yeah. Got it. So we but, suck okay. up two of your seconds. Yep. So really it's stall eight. eight second. but... Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, a fast word. stall. You know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I've also been playing mini, so I feel pretty good about this. Eight, eight. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> good. It's Perfect. familiar. Uh, yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. Lou, I'll start. Okay. Cool. What teammate do you want on the line with you? Catch him. Who is the hardest matchup you've ever had? Oh my God. Emily Barrera, I think from Ohio State. What's the best tournament? Oh, uh, no, with go. Favorite post-tournament meal? Chinese buffet. (laughs) 
If you can only have one throw, what throw do you pick? A low-release flick. Favorite play you've ever made? Just recently, I uh, hooked it, and then I went up line, and I caught it for score. Nice. I think that's one of the hardest questions. Good job. <laughs> What's a TV show recommendation? Shit's Creek. Someone you're grateful for? Tat Chen. <laughs> Your most used emoji? Uh, the one that's like a cute face with like teary eyes. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> We've gotten that answer like two times now. <laughs> People love that emoji. It's my energy. <laughs> What's the best compliment you've ever received? Oh, some guy walked up to me on the lakefield the other day and just said, oh, you're beautiful, by the way, and then biked away. <laughs> yeah, you did it. Yay! No stall. No stall outs. Oh, my God. I mean, okay, I did answer Kat Chen for two of them, so was that cheap? <laughs> no. Kat Chen's my best friend. There's no house to. <laughs> Gotcha. Oh, God, that was stressful. <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah. Thanks. appreciate that well ray thank you so much for being on the show with us it was really awesome to learn more about you thanks for sharing no thank you both for having me this is such an honor being the presence of such great players and also this is so much fun thank you so much (laughs) totally thanks so much to ray for coming on share the year we wanted to give you a quick update on what ray has been up to since we recorded this interview She is playing for EMU, Evanston Mixed Ultimate, this summer, and professionally is now working at Camera Ambassador while interning at the Annoyance Theater on the side. Good luck to Ray. As a reminder for what we talked about at the top of the episode, we're doing a raffle for some amazing VC Ultimate Share the Air gear. Check out our social media accounts on Monday, July 5th, to participate in the challenge, and you'll have a chance to win some fresh swag. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. If you like the podcast and want to support us, here are a few things that you can do. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Share the Air Podcast, and on Twitter at Share the Air Pod. You can also rate and review us, and most importantly, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. Lastly, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at team at sharethearepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Share the Air is hosted by Tulsa Douglas and Louisa Nevis. It's produced and edited by Tulsa Douglas, Louisa Nevis, and Tim Bobrowski. Share the Air's music is by Gray Devlin and Christopher Hernandez. Thanks again to our sponsors, NutC and BC Ultimate. Speaking of our Patreon supporters, we have a listener question. Our very first one. Woo! Do you just say yay? I couldn't remember if you said yay then or after David J, but... <laughs> I'm sorry, you can re-record that again. Or I can just say yay and we can splice it in. <laughs> or we can use use my <laughs> have laughing. Um no, we can we can spice yours in. <laughs> 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 Woo. Uh, okay.